did you a little bit of a sheet this morning because we've got so much material we're covering in regard to this particular topic that we're in on citizenship right now. And uh, hopefully we can, you know, fly through some of it. You can go back and read some of the passages that I've written down there. We'll read as many of them as we have time for here this morning. Uh, but this is, this is different than our normal exegetical uh, messages that we usually give here. It's, we're in a topical series on citizenship. And if you haven't been with us, let me just kind of bring you up to speed. The first week, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about how our primary and dominant citizenship is in heaven with Jesus Christ as our king, our sovereign. And that that citizenship is to permeate and determine every other part of our citizenship on, here on earth. And so with that in mind, then the second week we launched into, well, okay, so what does that mean for being a citizen of any country here on the earth? What, what does that involve, biblically speaking? And how should the scriptures inform, particularly us here in America, how we work out our citizenship in this particular constitutional republic? And uh, we saw things that would apply to no matter what government you're living under, whether it's a dictatorship or or a constitutional republic like we have, that Christians are to first and foremost live the preeminence of Christ out in everything we do, public and private. And if people see that, then we've been we will be good citizens, no question. That includes specifically some things like learning to live with an attitude of submission to authority, whether you like the authority or not. God calls us to live in submission to all authority, to some degree or very, to varying degrees. Uh, he calls us to pray for our leaders. He calls us to pay our taxes. And he calls us to practice good stewardship of whatever form of government we've been put under. And that's when we applied it last week to say, well, what does that mean to a, to a government that is the, of the people? by the people and for the people. Uh, by the way, I found out this week that that, that phrase uh, did not originate with Abraham Lincoln. It originated, uh, I believe, in the 7th century A.D. I'm trying to remember right now where I saw that, but uh, it, it, was, it was from somebody who translated the scriptures into the language of the people and did so so that they might have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And, and look what we have. So as uh, citizens of the United States of America, some very specific stewardship roles that we have are, number one, voting. And that's going to happen on Tuesday. And so I, I, I hope that all of you will take that very seriously because that's a gift that God has given us, and we get to choose our own leaders. And so uh, t- I, we looked at other things that flow from that. So that brings us up to today's message and today, I want us to answer the question, are, are there biblical principles and commands that should lead Christian citizens to prefer, practice, and pursue a certain economic uh, system or model? Because that's one of the things that's confronting us nowadays in our culture. We're being torn apart by different ec- economic models. And uh, There is no, I will start right out by saying there's no biblical model for economics, a single system. But there are lots of things the Bible has to say about economics. We could could put this question more starkly, at least for our culture. Does the Bible give us any guidance as to whether we should advocate for capitalism, for socialism, 
for communism and any other number of isms that form different economic systems in the world. So, before you glaze over and think, uh, what on earth does this have to do with being a good citizen, how many economic decisions have you already made today? Just think about that for a second. I would contend you've made hundreds already today. Already today. You may not have seen them as money-related, but they are. You may not have pulled out your credit card or your wallet yet, but you've made hundreds of decisions already today that have economic consequences. The economy is not just money. It is a complex system of choices that we make about all of our resources, including money. But it could be things like our time, and you've made some decisions already about that. You may come to regret it. I hope not. Uh, about your energy, about your conversations, about friendships, family, brain power, walking and driving, sleeping, maybe even in the service this morning. I don't know. Every choice we make throughout the day involves managing our resources, and that's what economics is all about, managing our resources. There's not a single area of your life or mine that is not economic in some way because you're making choices and I'm making choices all the time about my resources. If you should be helping, for instance, your spouse with the dishes or housework or children, and you say, no, no, dear, uh, I got to go pray right now, and you just close the door to the chaos in your home, and you pray, you're making an economic decision. And that decision probably is the wrong decision in the moment for most people because, you know, God's probably going to say, hey, I'll wake you up in the middle of the night, no problem, we can get our prayer time, but right now your husband or wife needs help. So go make a good economic choice, a, a, a better economic choice right now. But lest we dumb economics down to everything we do, think of the term economics as applying to two key concepts of our life. Number one is what we call exchange. It's, exchange is simply buying or selling or trading something, whether it's time or money or effort or whatever. So we're all involved in exchange all the time. And second is specialization. And that means focusing on the use of the resources God has given you to create the best product possible. Now, now, I made a decision at some point in my life that I believed that God had equipped me so that the best use of my life would be in teaching other people the Word of God. And that came about through lots of different encounters and education, a whole bunch of stuff. But I concluded, you know, the best use of my time, given who I am by God, would be to invest in the church. And so I've invested my life in the church. And you all are making those decisions every single day about where is the best investment of who you are. We're all made differently. So we're all going to come to some different conclusions about this. But the question is, where is God going to get the biggest bang for his buck out of me and you? That's the question that economics asks. So let me throw out a quick definition, a Wikipedia one at that, uh, about economics. Economics is the social science that studies how people interact with things of value. In particular, the production, the distribution, and the consumption of goods and services. 
Now, put, it, put another way, economics is a useful tool for practicing stewardship over limited resources. You and I have, are limited, right? And so every day you're making economic decisions about how to parcel out that, those limited resources of energy and health and time and, and everything that you are, okay? So here, here's a question. This is, this is why economics is actually a huge part of Christian citizenship. Here's the first question. How many verses do you think in the Bible deal with money and economics? Any guess? Lots, actually. Over 2,350 verses. That's about, uh, about almost 8% of the entire scripture's verses deal with money and economics or some sort of economic decision. Second question. Are there economic principles found in Scripture by which we should live? Yes. Give me one. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you make that decision any given day, it will impact what you do with every bit of your resources. Okay? Give me another economic principle out of Scripture. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay, and we could develop that in a number of ways. There are probably, well, at least hundreds, if not thousands of economic principles in the scripture. And we're just going to look at a dozen of them today that should dominate how you and I look at our own economy, how we handle capitalism or socialism or whatever it is that is going to be coming down the pike here. So I've got kind of... I want to quote from Robert Moeller. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, and he actually came up with these 12 different axioms or, or sort of rules. And so I'm borrowing from that, and then I'm giving you the scripture behind it because he doesn't give the scripture behind it. But I want to talk a little bit about each of them. So this is what he says about Christians and economics, however. He says, regrettably, many American Christians know little about economics. Furthermore, many Christians assume that the Bible has nothing at all to say about economics, but a biblical worldview actually has a great deal to teach us about economic matters. The meaning of work, the value of labor, and the other economic issues are all part of the biblical worldview. At the same time, we must recognize that the Christian worldview does not demand a particular economic system. God gives us more freedom than we deserve, and that is safe for us, okay? So, here are the 12 axioms uh, or principles or bibl- about biblical economics, and here we go. Number one, a, a Christian economic understanding has God's glory as its greatest aim. You'll notice in the, uh, in the outline I've given you, I've left a few blanks just to keep you awake, okay? So, God's glory is what we're talking about here. For Christians, all economic theory begins with the aim to honor Christ, to glorify God. We saw that verse last week in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, about whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. If you're not expending your resources to the glory of God, you're you're misspending. I can guarantee you, you will be, okay? Uh, If what you're doing is in advocating anything in terms of uh, a system is not predominantly to lead people to Christ and grow them up in him, then it's flawed, okay? Our daily participation in the economy is really a front line in the holy war between good and evil. 
So every time you expend something, you're engaging in a holy war between good and evil. You're either going to be building up evil or building up good, one or the other. Number two, a Christian economic understanding respects human dignity. People are not to be treated as means to an end. If you're an employer and you hire somebody, you're not hiring them so that you can just get richer. You are to hire them because they are worthy of a job and they deserve reward for their labor. Now, that reward hopefully will reward you as well as a business owner. But if all it is is about money, you're going to cut them off as soon as or whenever they're not turning the profit you expected. And God says, wait a minute, that's using people as a means to an end. That's not what it's for. Many people may believe that they're working for their own reasons, their own glory, their own wealth, their own pleasure. But when we seek to create wealth and to provide for ourselves and our loved ones, to create things and experience experiences of value for others, we are working out of an impulse that was put there by God. And people all over this town who have no relationship to God work because of that impulse. Because God put that impulse in them to say, I want something more. And God uses that to benefit other people. Okay? So respecting human dignity does not mean giving everyone the same reward for their work. Some people are more productive at certain work than others. And the scriptures say, reward them accordingly if you choose. And it also says, and don't, don't blame the boss if he pays everybody the same. Okay? So that's up to the boss. We get this value of human dignity from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where God said, I've created mankind in my own image, in the image of God have I created him, male and female, I create him. So equal image of God. Okay, number three, a Christian economic understanding respects private property and encourages ownership. Now, this one is going to run head on into some economic systems, such as what? Communism, for one, because they see private ownership as the root of all evil economically. And God has a different view of ownership. For instance, consider how many of the Ten Commandments touch on work and property. Just think about it for a moment. The second commandment, don't make graven images. What's God saying? Don't use your labor for certain things that produce an evil. Okay, let's take the fourth one. Observe the Sabbath. Six days you shall do what? Labor, work. Okay, so a six-day work week, really, up to a six-day work week is biblical. Anything less is gravy, okay? And, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, but he goes on to say, he says right there, work is a part of your worship of God. And stopping work is a part of your worship. The sixth commandment, don't steal anybody's life. In other words, don't murder. When, you, when we murder... We steal the most valuable thing a person will ever own, right? Their own life. Number eight, you shall not steal. He just says it right out. Well, if nobody owns anything, there's no stealing, is there? Okay, so obviously God assumes that we're going to own things. 
And then the 10th one, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or his land or his male servant or female servant or his ox or donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. So God obviously assumes that private ownership is good for people. This is a reflection of his nature. The law is always a reflection of his nature, okay? So when you speak against private ownership, in some way you're speaking against God's nature. Now, that doesn't mean that private ownership can't be abused. It certainly can. But that's not the point I'm trying to make right here. Here's some other biblical passages related to ownership. The fact that God gave the 12 tribes of Israel land... He's, and then he said, and divide it up according to the tribe. And he didn't give to each tribe equal amount, did he? Okay? But he gave them the promised land. That was part of his, that, that changes us when we own property. That we have to manage. Be it your house. Treat stuff differently when they, don't they? And God knows this. God set out, and that's why he appeals to, to, to property. Uh, He said, you know, I know some of you, stuff's going to happen. Life's going to happen here. Some of you are going to borrow money from somebody. You're going to have to, you're going to go into debt. The crops are going to fail. Your health's going to fail. You're going to need to borrow money from, you're going to have to sell your property. But he said, "Uh, that's only temporary. Under the Jewish system, every 50 years, every piece of property had to revert back to the original owner. Wouldn't that change economic dynamics? And every seven years, you had to cancel any loan you had given. So let's say it's year five of the seven-year cycle, and somebody, your brother comes and says, I need you to loan me $50,000. And you say, well, the payment schedule on that's going to be pretty steep over the next two years. And he says, yeah, I know that. Okay, you got a decision to make. So... The system economically in Israel was a very different system uh, from what we have. And you can see those in Leviticus 25 and, and Deuteronomy chapter 15. Um, I won't read those passages. We're short on time. Number four, a Christian economic understanding takes into full account the power of the fall and sinful human nature. Now, we saw this last week, right, when it came to uh, political systems that... Uh, if you don't understand the nature of sinful man, you're going to come out with a wrong system and you're going to think we're able to do something we can't. And the same applies to economics. If people were basically good, we would not lead, need laws that punish graft or theft or embezzlement or tax evasion or welfare fraud or you name it. We wouldn't need tax codes that take from those who have more and give to those who are poverty-stricken. We wouldn't need to tell corporations or the wealthy what to do with their money through taxation. They would naturally take care of the poor. They would give to those in need. They would pay workers their due. They would provide whatever benefits they could. Every communist, socialist, and capitalist system of taxes and laws is proof that we're fallen human beings. And we all know it at our core, don't we? And so we think of different ways to make sure people do the right things. And some work better than others, okay? A good economic system recognizes the dangers of its own system, 
because of the sinfulness of mankind. And systems that are built upon the belief that man is good enough to do it on his own will always fail. Always fail, whether capitalism or socialism or whatever. So what are some of the sinful economic dangers of capitalism? Tell me. Greed is number one, I think. Yeah. Never enough. More, 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 more. What other dangers exist? Control. Abuse of people. What else? Corruption. Keep going. Unfair labor practices. Abuse of your workers. Charging exorbitant prices or interest. I mean, usury. We, we could keep going. Now let's talk about what are some of the dangers of socialism. And they're the same dangers, interesting enough, as communism. By the way, uh, when Lenin sought to impose communism in Russia after the Russian Revolution, he did, did it so fast he realized he had made a mistake and he pulled back into capitalism because the Russian economy had not uh, gone through this capitalistic phase. And so he said, well, people got to have some motive to work. And so he kind of made it quasi-capitalist, and then he went to socialism, and then he went to communism. Okay? So when we talk socialism and communism, they're two different systems of the same value, though. So what, so what are the dangers of socialism and communism? Laziness. What else? What's that? Freedom in what way? Oh, okay. Loss of, yeah, loss of freedom. Because the government tells you you have to do more and more and more or what you have to do. And every time the government says that, you lose a freedom. Okay? What else? Corruption. Corruption. Now, there are overlapping things between capitalism and, and socialism, right? Can you see that? Okay. What else? Or per, what else is, uh, you, or maybe not unique, but strong tendency in control. control? Oh, boy. That one is probably top of the list. In, because the whole belief of socialism is that we need central government to control the distribution of goods and services in the society in order for it to be fair for everybody. Okay? So control becomes the operative word of socialism and communism. Anything else? Hostility. Hostility yeah. Uh, coercion. Elitism, belief that only a few people are smart enough to figure this out and they should be in charge. Abuse of power. So, so you can see there are similar things operating in, in, in whatever system you're going to choose. They're just different ones that take precedence in that system. Okay? What does the Bible say uh, is a res- should be the believers, the follower, the follower of Christ? response to those temptations no matter what the system well number one is it always calls us to generosity no matter how poor we are it always calls us to generosity you've got several verses there i'll just give you a few of them proverbs 13 the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food but it is swept away through injustice the bible recognizes that some people are poor because of injustice okay So you can't blame all poverty on laziness. You can blame some poverty on it, but not all poverty. And then it says in chapter 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Wow, I I like that idea of lending. Lord, you need a little? Okay. That's how we ought to see giving to the poor. That's where you see the face of Christ in whoever you give to. It's like the Lord said... Give him a cup of cool water. I won't. I'll notice. I'll notice, he says. 
And then you've got, of course, uh, in the book of Ruth and Leviticus chapter uh, 23, you've got this whole biblical model of leaving enough work for the poor to work for a living. Notice I didn't say enough money. I said enough work. Because there's dignity in work that they will never get when we just hand out money. Okay? And so they were to leave the corners of their field so that uh, the poor and and a foreigner could come and glean those corners and they could actually have enough to live on. They're never going to get rich by it, were they? But it was enough to live on. And, And God says, work has value. We know that. We'll get to that. Because in Genesis, before the fall, God gave work to Adam and Eve. Okay? So it wasn't a result of sin. Work was not. Labor in it was. Okay, uh, fifth point here. A Christian economic understanding upholds and rewards righteousness. Every economic and government system comes with embedded incentives. An example of this in the, would be like, let's say, the American tax code. Okay? What does the American tax code incentivize, Joel, our accountant? <laughs> You were, you were catching up on your sleep. What does the American tax code incentivize? Yep, getting married and having kids. Thank you. What else does it incentivize? Uh, charity, yep, with deductions, good. What else? It rewards. Okay, the result of it is to reward the poor, to take from those who have and give to those who don't. Okay, so that's the result, but, I, but the tax code itself is structured, oh, it rewards all kinds of things. What else does it reward? Home ownership, indebtedness. Not to, and, and, now, is that a good thing, to go in debt? Does God say that's a great thing to reward? No. So it rewards some things that are not biblically sound, but it does, okay? So we could, you see, you can go down the list. Every economic system comes with embedded incentives. And whether they work or not is going to be an issue of endless political discussion. And we should be having those discussions. Because some of what it's rewarding right now is not working. All we need to do is look around our city. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 28. God, uh, this this reflects God's righteous bias in desiring to bless godliness through a government. Government should seek to mirror this. Listen to what he says. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. He's talking to Israel. Now he's talking about international relations. Verse 2. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And now he starts listing some of the blessings. You'll be blessed in the city. Your cities will prosper. You'll be blessed in the country. Your agriculture will prosper. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. And the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your baskets and your kneading troughs will be blessed. Your bakeries are going to be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. When you do what? Obey God. This is why when we disconnect economics from a, from a knowledge of God, it is only a matter of time till that God of economics destroys us. And we're in the process. Okay? We're in the process right in this country. All right, six. A Christian economic understanding rewards initiative 
industry, work, and investment. I think this may be the most important point of the entire morning. What do we mean by initiative? Initiative doesn't mean I just am busy. It means action that is fruitful. It's the kind of action that makes a difference. And that difference may be something that just benefits you personally, protects your, your own property, your own apartment, whatever. Or it may provide for other people, your family and, and a host of people in the community. But it, or it may be something that you produce of value. God wants to reward initiative. Okay? That's why I think being an entrepreneur is so much fun. Because you get to try new things. And, and, and you never know which one God's going to prosper. But lo and behold, he does every now and then. It just it flourishes. Something flourishes. Uh, so initiative, industry. Industry is nothing more than human work done together. We're doing industry this morning right here. Industry of worship. Industry of obedience to Christ, okay? So this is a form of industry, but so is a whole lot of other. And then the third part is investment. And that's, that's a part of the respect for private property that is found in Scripture. Investment, as it turns out, is as old as the Garden of Eden. That which accrues valuable value is honorable. And the impulse to accrue that value is honorable. Gone to seed, it becomes greed. Okay? So any of these things can become dishonorable. Thus, a Christian economic theory indicts anyone who will not work and can work. There's my qualifier. Who will not respect private property of other people and will not reward the investment of other people. Okay, we saw in Genesis chapter 2, God gave work. I'm not going to go over that. It's a good thing. Work is good and holy, okay? And when we leave it aside, we're leaving one of the best gifts God has for us. Work is commanded for us, and we got it in the Old and the New Testament. You got Ephesians chapter 5, I'm not going to take time to read that, and Exodus chapter 20, where we talked about laboring for six days of the week. Uh, work is required to meet our basic needs. In 2 Thessalonians, God says, you know, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Now, he's assuming somebody can work. He's not talking, talking about those who are so severely disabled that they cannot work. The, work is God's way uh, for us to find a measure of enjoyment in this life. Listen to Ecclesiastes 2. This is very interesting. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, says Solomon, I saw, was from the hand of God. You want gifts from God? Go to work. God will honor that. And lastly, work is God's way to gain wealth, whereas laziness is our way of destroying it. Everyone also to, says Ecclesiastes 5, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot, rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. Okay? Toil. It, it is a toil. But the, the hands of the diligent make a person rich, says Proverbs 10. And Proverbs 18, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. When we are not hard working, we're a destroyer. Because that's just the law of entropy, right? Everything goes to disorder. You got to keep working hard as hard is to keep stuff, just maintain it. And that's the problem with so many in our culture today who do not understand 
that everything they're experiencing because of the generosity of either the government or charities or whatnot is not free, is it? Hundreds of people had to work for that hot dog they handed out, right? Everything from the farmer to the person who bought it and is handing it out. Nothing is without cost in life. And we could talk about investment. I'm going to skip over that. Um, Investment is fraught also with lots of dangers. But God is totally in favor of investing excess resources to the benefit of him and his kingdom and other people. Just go to Luke chapter 19 with the parable of the mine is there. Or uh, Proverbs 31, the, the virtuous woman. Uh, you know, it's just, it's laced throughout Scripture. And it, here, I'll end this point with this Scripture. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. I think what God's saying is the way you work at work has parallels for your spiritual life with Christ. Okay? He's saying, because if he's asking you to be a worker, and you bring to him no work, you're not going to be an approved workman. Okay? Number seven. uh, And I need to qualify this, please, because, uh, as I said, this is probably the most important principle of the entire morning. It is because this is where our culture is fighting a real losing battle right now. And, and, I, and it is my personal belief that this is where socialism and communism fails miserably. The pilgrims actually practiced socialism for a year. They tried it for the first year, and they almost all starved to death. Trust me, I've done my homework on this. And as soon as they moved from a socialistic system of agriculture at Plymouth Rock there, and they gave people private property to grow their own gardens, guess what happened? The same thing that happened to communism over the last, well, previously 20 years ago, 60 years before that. I mean, we saw it. Those of you who are old enough, I mean, I remember the wall coming down. I was in Europe when it happened. Communism failed because it didn't recognize private ownership, didn't recognize the incentive of, of human labor, all these things. It just, everybody got the same, except the Politburo. They got everything they wanted. Okay, and that'll happen in any system. All right? Seven. Here we go. We're going to rush. A Christian economic understanding seeks to reward and incentivize thrift. In other words, don't spend everything you got. I don't care what your income is. I've, what I've found is my needs grow ex, uh, according to my income. And they just never... You know, it just keeps growing, right? So whether you're living on $10,000 a year or $100,000 a year, don't spend it all. Don't buy the debt routine that our culture is in. Public policy, good public policy, should reward saving, not spending. That's where this whole debt-driven economy is not going to end well for us. All right, number eight, a Christian economic understanding upholds the family as the most basic economic unit. When thinking about economic theory, embedded in the beginning of the Bible, the dominion mandate was given to two people, a husband and a wife who later had children. Okay? 
the pattern of leaving and cleaving described in Genesis chapter 2 is fundamental to our economic understanding. Adam and Eve were the first economic unit. They benefited each other. They benefited their children. The result is that the family, as biblically defined, is the most basic and essential unit of the economy. This is why our first responsibility as followers of Christ is to take care of our families. That's real clear. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And if you're doing that, God is happy. God is very happy. Okay? Number nine. A Christian economic understanding must respect community. Now, most secular econ- economists begin with community. Communism begins with community. We're only as great as the sum of our whole here. No, God says, nope, it begins with the family. When you have strong families, you will have strong economies. When you have weak families, what happens to the economy? It suffers. Because now the economy, everybody else got to take up the slack of a weak family, right? And here's where communism is bound to fail. They say, no, you give us our, your kids, we'll train them, we'll raise them. They destroy the family, and eventually economics fails. It just, it, it's just hardwired into the system as God has made us, okay? Uh, so if the family is the most basic unit, what is the next most basic community unit according to the scriptures? The church. We're the ones who are supposed to be caring for each other, There should not be a needy person among us if we're functioning well. Now, did God say there should not be a needy person among the society? Not necessarily, unless you're Israel and you're living by the law. Then he said, there should be no needy among you. But does that mean we ignore those outside the church? Of course not. Okay? So, But but they're not the first priority. You have to prioritize your resources, don't you? Because if you're not healthy, you can't take care of your family. And if they're not healthy, you can't take care of the people out there. All right? So th- this is a cascading effect. What, has, what does communism do to that script? It flips it completely. And it says, nope, the family's not that important. Marriage really isn't important. And, uh, and church certainly isn't important. And look what happens. Okay? Next point. Number 10. We're almost done. A Christian economic understanding rewards generosity and proper Stewardship. We must live with a future orientation to the kingdom of God, not this world, or we will misappropriate our funds. Because God has given us every penny that passes through our palm. And, and, and he's just said to us, you're the steward. How are you going to spend it? Where are you going to spend it? Number 11. A Christian economic understanding respects the priority of the church and its mission. We have distinct priorities that nobody else in the culture is going to have. The church has those priorities. What are some of them that your neighbor is not going to care about if they're not a believer? We've got some people sitting here ready to live it out. And it's going to impact your pocketbook. Let me trust you. Trust me. What is it? Missions. Yeah, missions. Missions ought to be a huge priority for the people of God. And I just read you stories of some people who gave their life because of mission. Okay? What else is a priority your neighbor doesn't have? Holiness. Yeah. Yeah, holiness. And, and that's going to cost you some resources, isn't it? I mean, we could just go down a whole host of things here. The church's priorities will be different from the governments and the cultures. 
Okay? So don't be surprised when they're clashing. All right? Um, and lastly, um, a Christian economic perspective is to be grounded in, e- in e- an eternal perspective. This life and its resources will never last, and they can never ultimately give you joy. That's why God says, learn to give it away. That'll give you joy. Learn to bless other people by creating jobs. That'll give you joy. The Christian worldview reminds us that we must live with the recognition that we will give an account to the Lord for our stewardship. At the same time, Christians must look to this future that God has promised us of the kingdom that will never end. That's why our primary citizenship is so important. And I'll end with this passage. Jeremiah chapter 29 He's writing to the, uh, Jeremiah's writing from Jerusalem that has just been emptied of all its people because the Babylonian uh, empire took them over and took them off in captivity to Babylon. And so Jeremiah is writing to the Jewish residents of Babylon. And they're just trying to settle into this pagan city, this new city, and the, it's, everything's amiss, okay? And this is what he writes to them. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. That's economics. And settle down. Plant gardens. And eat what they produce. That's economics. Marry and have sons and daughters. Do you see the priority of the family? Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too will have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. You mean Babylon? Yep. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Let's pray. Father, here we are thousands of years after you wrote these words to your children, after you began this whole experience of human existence. And here we are wrestling with dozens of different possible economic systems and the impact on our lives every day. Thank you for giving us direction. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it has been proven true through the ups and downs of every possible government in this world. And we pray, oh Lord, we pray, that this country would recover a love for you. Because without that, Father, we know no economy will survive. No system will be enough. But if if we and if our neighbors love the Lord our God, this city will prosper. This country will prosper. The world will prosper. So please make your kingdom great in our eyes so that we follow you and the call that you've laid on each of us to disperse the resources of our lives in the best investments possible in this life. We ask it in Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.